praises of our God. I love hearing the many voices raised singing that, that song. That is, that's a beautiful thing and a little taste of heaven. And what a joy for us to have here. <laughs> what a joy. Well, why don't you open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, where today we are looking at verses 18 through 25. And late last night, I decided to change the title of the sermon, so it's a little bit different than what your bulletin says. I've changed it from servants to suffering servants, which is our focus today. This letter of 1 Peter swells with a great hope found in Jesus Christ, who is our living hope. And this letter is meant to fill us with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This hope, these joys, they are are held in our hearts and in, in our minds. They are truths of the Spirit. Or you might say they are spiritual truths. But these gospel truths are not just meant for the invisible, they are meant to become visible. They are are meant to enter into our physical world and change it through our hands, through our mouths, through our attitudes. What is invisible is meant to be seen through us, making it visible. In Peter's letter, everything before chapter 2, verse 11, was the invisible were the theological, spiritual realities that undergird our faith, that are the source of our faith. Following chapter 2, verse 11, we enter part 2 of his letter, where the, where the invisible is made visible. And he does this, he, he starts making it visible, these hopes and joys of the gospel, by telling us to do good works and abstain from the sinful passions of our flesh. We make war against sin... And we fight to do good to those people in our lives. And then when you get to the verse 13, Peter drops a bomb on us. And it's something so strange, so upside down that it's absolutely foolish to the world. The world cannot comprehend what Peter is writing about next. Starting in verse 13, all the way into our passage and beyond. If the gospel is to be lived out in this world, if the invisible is to become visible, then we as followers of Christ must be committed to submission, to our own submission. As Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject, be submissive. The first human institution that, that Peter addresses, the first one that we must submit ourselves to, is the institution of government. And we saw this last week. Our local legislators, our governor, and even our president. Yes, we must submit ourselves to the leadership of our president and honor him. Honor him even in our hearts. I know that that sermon ruffled some feathers But if the Bible does not ruffle our feathers from time to time, then we're doing it wrong. And if we want to reinterpret things so it's a little bit more palatable, then we are doing it wrong. The Word of God is both confrontational 
and healing, and you cannot just have the healing without the confrontation. So I wonder, how are you submitting yourself to God's Word? The words we come to today, starting in verse 18, are just as confrontational, perhaps, perhaps even more challenging than what we saw last week. And yet, in the midst of that incredible challenge, we find these words of great hope and great joy coursing through them. And so today, as we look at verses 18 through 25 of chapter 1, these three things, I hope these three things will happen, that we learn that faith subverts unjust institutions of man, that we are called to suffer as Christians, and thirdly, Christ is our freedom. These are the three things that we want to see this morning. So let's read our passage, and I'm going to start in verse 13. If you could follow along with me, please. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as the servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is, the, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Won't you pray with me? Lord, this morning we need to see with spiritual eyes, not the eyes of our flesh. So, Father, I pray that you would give us your spirit that we might see clearly and truly the things of your kingdom. And, Lord, I pray that as we behold these glorious wonders, these amazing graces, that we would be transformed by them, that we would be spurred on by them, and that we would not be daunted by anything that this world throws at us. You have given us a living hope, unshakable, untakeable. Now, God, let us live in it. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So these verses, 18 through 25, I could easily have chopped into three distinct sermons. I struggled with the idea of doing that. I want to do that in many ways. Um, I could break it up into a sermon about enduring suffering, one about our calling to suffer, and then a third sermon about 
the substitutional, substitutional atonement of Christ. Each one of these things requires a deep dive, and we should deep dive into those things. But I thought that if we did that, we might miss something. So I decided to back off of doing that, to zoom out a little bit, to take 18 through 25 in one chunk, our largest chunk of Scripture so far, because I think when we do that, we really get what Peter is driving at, something, something bigger, grander than each one of those three parts. And this is going to help us to be servants of Christ who suffer, who are free, and who follow him all the way to the cross. So we're taking a big chunk, a big bite to swallow, but by God's grace, we will digest it. For the reality is, is if that we want to follow Christ, if we are followers of Christ, we must submit to suffering, to serving, and to the cross. And Jesus, this is why Jesus himself came We're followers of him, right? He told us, Jesus told us about himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So according to his own words, Jesus came, his purpose on earth was to serve and to suffer, to ransom a people. So his serving, his suffering, brings us freedom. It is our ransom. Now on that note, let's look once more at verse 18, where Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You know that I, I think most of you know that I read from the ESV translation, and today we see one more reason why, because I think the NIV gets it wrong here. The NIV translates uses the word slave, and and it reads, slaves be subject to your masters. The Greek word for slave is doulos, but that's not the Greek word that Peter employs here. He's using the word oikete, oiketes, and the ESV does a much better job translating this as servants, but even the word servants doesn't quite capture the picture of who it is that Peter's addressing. There's no, there's no English equivalent. We have no category in our Western thinking of who these people were and how they fit into Roman society. So it's hard to draw a parallel. But we do know that these servants, which these servants, oiketes, they faced nothing that was as abhorrent as, and as racist as the establishment of slavery here in America's past. It's nothing like that. Oiketes primarily served in the household. And in fact, oiketes is derived from the word oikos, which means house, household. So these oiketes, they, many of them were unskilled laborers, but many were managers and overseers and doctors and nurses and musicians and artists and teachers. These servants... Yes, they were not free, but they were paid wages. So they could even eventually expect to buy their freedom later on in life. But many chose not to. They chose not to buy their freedom, but to become bond servants because they so preferred the arrangement that they were living in. And they didn't want to go out into the world and try to make it on their own. 
And so they gave themselves permanently to their masters. But still, oiketes were servants. They were not free. They had to fulfill the wishes of their masters. And they were definitely a lower class of society in Roman culture. They had little opportunity. They had little legal standing. But nonetheless, they were generally treated very well. And extensive Roman laws ensured that these oiketes were treated well. Or treated justly. So it's this whole well-established class of people that was ingrained into the culture of Rome. The closest relationship that we have in our American culture to what oiketes were, to the master-servant relationship in Peter's culture, the closest relationship we have is that of employer and employee. That's not an exact parallel, but it comes the closest. Again, it was nothing like American slavery. And so I want to be very clear right here so that there's no confusion. In no way am I saying that slavery in any form is a good thing. Slavery is not a good thing. And the Bible is not condoning slavery in any form, nor does it. In fact, within the pages of the Bible, and even within our passage today, as you will see, resides the justification and the impetus to dismantle slavery. But we see as we go through this passage that Peter is less concerned about the existence of the, the establishment of slavery and more concerned with our hearts and our submission. It's not primarily about the ills of culture, but it's about the culture of heaven being brought into humanity, thus changing humanity, infusing a whole new culture. And as a result, slavery in Rome, this establishment in Rome would topple. As a result, American slavery would topple because of the truths that we find in Scripture. If we didn't have these, there would be no reason to overthrow things like slavery. These are the words of an advancing kingdom that smashes the gates of hell, and hell is a dominion of slavery. Look again at those words in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Though oiketes were generally well-treated, many of their masters were good and gentle, as Peter acknowledges here. There were still many masters who were unjust. And this term unjust sort of is a catch-all phrase for many things. It suggests dishonesty regarding their pay or poor working conditions, perhaps unreasonable expectations, and then, yes, even physical mistreatment. But regardless of whether the master is good or bad, so long as they're not demanding you to sin, these servants are to respectfully subject themselves to the authority of their masters. It should remind you of verse 13, which we we just read. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, including this institution of servant and master. This is an institution that Christ is calling his followers to be submissive within it. If you thought that subjecting yourself to a corrupt government was difficult, how about to an unjust master? 
And you might say to yourself, I'm not a servant like this. I don't have a master over me. I, I don't live within the context of this institution. It's not even a part of our culture. Brace yourself. Because Peter is using this human institution to teach us something so much bigger. To teach us about something that transcends time and culture. Something about submission and suffering and freedom. Much greater ultimate realities. And we begin to see this emerge in verses 19 and 20. Look with me at them. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If you suffer because you have done something wrong or, or sinful, there's nothing noble in that. That's a natural consequence of your foolish behavior. Additionally, a stoic tenacity that endures through suffering by gritted teeth with a heart that defies submission, that does not honor God either. The way of God is foolishness to this world. It's upside down. It seems backwards. It seems not to make sense in the eyes of the world. For the world would self-protect and the world would seek revenge and the world would rebel against their unjust masters. But the way of God is altogether different. The way of God is to submit to that authority, that authority who wields unjust suffering. And it was, if it was doing good that brought you into that sorrow, continue to lovingly do that good, even though you're, you know you're going to face injustice as a result. Continue in doing that good. The suffering while being mindful of God, that means looking beyond what is seen to what is unseen, beyond your present circumstances to those eternal realities. Think not with the mind of a sinner, but think with the mind of Christ. This is being mindful of God. Being mindful of God means continually entrusting yourself to God and to His care, that He sees every injustice and that He will right every wrong. Every right that is trampled upon, he will vindicate. He will right it. He promises. So being mindful of God is trusting in God to sweep away the injustice of this world with righteousness and with justice and to vindicate every false accusation and unwarranted sorrow. In other words, we trust God with our suffering. We trust him with our suffering. We do not seek to rebel against the suffering, but we trust God with the suffering. And here you get your first peek into something that's far greater than any human institution, especially that of master and servant, a freedom that ends up subverting the unjust human institutions. And I want to be clear, this is the opposite of a servile, weak, broken attitude. There are no doormats in the kingdom of God. The ultimate demonstration of freedom 
is that no matter how much you are beaten down, no matter how many slanderous words are spoken against you, no matter what the whip claims from your back, your hope and your joy cannot be taken from you. Your salvation is fixed. For when the injustices of this world strip the skin from your back, what's revealed is this precious, glimmering gold underneath. Look back in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And like we saw when we studied that passage, that praise, glory, and honor is yours, given to you by God. This is your vindication. Though the world strip from you everything, perhaps even the skin off your back, God gives you glory and honor and praise. Amen. So respectful, loving submission, even in the face of injustice, subverts the powers of this world with the power of another world. This attitude reveals that no follower of Christ is forced into submission, not one. But we willingly walk into it. We willingly submit ourselves to it. No master enslaves us, for we have been bought by Christ, and we are his. And now slavery to Christ transforms our servitude into freedom. With these words, slavery, all slavery, in all times, in all forms, is abolished. Through the ins- though the institution may stand, man is free, perfectly free. And yes, these words will eventually lead to the toppling of slavery in Rome and in America. It, it happens. But again, before God is concerned with human institutions, he is concerned with our own hearts. Indeed, the ways of God are foolishness to man. It only begins to make sense when we realize that this path has already been cut by the king. The king of a strange and divine kingdom. A king who is himself the suffering servant. Look now at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I don't know if you, if you heard what Peter just said. When God caused you to be born again to a living hope, when he called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, he also called you to suffer. He called you to suffer. And Peter writes a very, or sorry, Paul writes a very similar thing in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God gives the gift of faith, and God gives the gift of suffering. They come together. If you are Christ's, he has called you to both, to faith and to suffer. 
But the context of our passage in 1 Peter is slightly more specific. Not only has God called you to suffer, He has called you to suffer unjustly. And now the scope of this passage has just dramatically zoomed out. Oiketes, they're no longer the focus. This is about every believer, every single believer who faces a higher authority, which is all of us. From the government, in family, in your occupation, in education, in any institution of man. If you face a higher authority, Peter is now talking to you. God called you to suffer, even unjustly. Why, you might ask? Why? Because I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ, a statement, a declaration of suffering, unjustly. We are followers of Christ, and he died our death so that we could live his life. We have been called to suffer because, as Peter writes in verse 21, look at it, Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Could Peter be any more clear? Suffering is not our fate. It is our calling. There was a time that Peter thought, this is nonsense, Jesus. You're going to suffer? You're the Messiah. And so Peter rebuked Jesus for such silly talk. Who was the fool? And then Peter helplessly saw it all happen. He saw him arrested. He listened to all the injustices happening in that courtroom. He watched his Lord be crucified. And then he saw the tomb empty. And then he saw his risen Savior. And he heard his words about the kingdom. And he saw him ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he understood. He understood that suffering and submission is the way of the kingdom. And as servants of Christ, we follow Jesus to that cross. And not just to the cross, but also to the injustice of the kangaroo court that was filled with slander and condemnation from the world. In verse 22, he, Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I'm going to show you that verse, verses 22 through 25, Peter is referencing Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. What Peter saw with his own eyes, Isaiah foresaw. And I'm going to read you a little section of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We might be accused of lying, even if we didn't tell a lie. That doesn't mean we're not liars. We might be accused of stealing when we took nothing, but that doesn't mean we are not thieves. For we all... Every one of us have turned astray and our lives brim with iniquity. Oh, we deserve justice. But completely unlike us, Jesus is blameless and utterly pure. Never a lie, never a sinful thought, never a lazy moment, never any shred or shadow of sin. And any accusation at all against him is the epitome of injustice. Imagine it. How impossible it would be to stand in a room surrounded by people accusing you of things that you have not done, all manner of things that you have not done. And then they spit on you and they sucker punch you. The pressure to sin in that moment would be almost unbearable. The sins of hate, the sins of revenge, the sins of self-centered victimhood. All sins where we would in vain try to take matters into our own hands. All sins that Jesus never committed in this vice grip of pressure. And in that moment, instead of demanding justice... Jesus chose meekness to submit himself to these injustices of man. He could have called down a legion of angels and obliterated everybody in that room, in that city. He could have silenced them with a word. Instead, with far greater courage, courage that can only come from a man who is completely free, He chose to submit himself to the merciless injustice of man. And he did it by casting himself completely upon the justice of the Almighty Judge with full assurance as these slanderous falsehoods were being spoken against him as he received the blows. With full assurance, Jesus knew that his Father would right every wrong. With full assurance, Jesus knew that his submission and his blood spilt was purchasing freedom for countless souls bound by the chains of sin. And now we come to some most glorious verses. In 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. All the sins of the elect, all of our sins now concentrated on this one man, concentrated upon Jesus, not because Jesus deserved it, but because he freely chose it, he submitted to it. The reviling and the condemnation that we justly deserve, Christ faced it it for us on our behalf. He took the curse. He took our death. He was our substitute. And now his wounds become our healing. His broken body is our freedom. And no matter what human institutions might claim, we are free to live in joy, in hope, and in righteousness. For we have freedom in Christ Jesus our Lord. And no human institution can claim that from us. No master enslaves us, for we are slaves of Christ. No one forces us to submit, for we joyfully follow Jesus there. This, too, was the heart of Paul. And let this be the heart's cry of all of us. Indeed, that we would count everything as loss for the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible... I might attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means possible, even suffering at the hands of the unjust. For when we follow Jesus into suffering, especially into unjust suffering, we come falling into the arms of our shepherd and our overseer. And he will ensure that no chain holds us. And he will ensure that no injustice goes unpunished. God himself, he will vindicate his royal priesthood. And the little that was taken from us, he will restore. But more, but so much more. For he is keeping for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, ready to be revealed at the last day. That's ours. Who can take it? Brothers and sisters, with such a faith, what power do the institutions of man really hold over us? It's for a moment, a breath, a blip. We are free in ways that this world cannot understand. And our our faith, which freely allows us to soar, only gets stronger, brighter, more powerful when we follow our Lord into our calling and we submit to suffering. So when your employer or your teacher or your president brings injustice upon you, set your mind on Christ. Look to not what is seen, but to what is unseen. 
endure and honor your authorities. Suffering is not easy and it never will be. It is a lot easier to stand here and talk about it than it is to walk through it. But no matter where you are this morning, ask yourself, are you ready to endure suffering? We're not to go out and look for it, but we are to understand that it is coming and you are called to it. And it is a gift from God to you to bring about within you faith more precious than gold that will result in your glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a hope we have been given. Let's pray. Father God, help us to walk in this freedom. We know where your spirit is, there is freedom, and your spirit is within us, and so we are free, utterly free. Now in that freedom, Lord, help us to respectfully, honorably live in this world led by the institutions of man, unjustly or not. Give us the grace to walk these days righteously and freely. Lord, I pray that each one here would see more clearly the way that your kingdom works and these things that are foolishness to the world, submission and, and suffering, these would become precious to us and would be, instead of a source of sorrow, of great joy and great hope, reminding us always of the day when we will see our Savior and be released of every shackle and chain. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.